Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. You know, as I go into the the next week here, today's Sunday the 9th. I record these a little early, or try to. Um, I'm a little behind on this one, but as it just seems to be how that goes. But as I uh, as I go into the week, uh, end, ending this weekend, I am uh, reflective of a few things that I think are... You know, things I've struggled with that I actually see some real growth with. And then maybe some other things that I could probably work on. I try to do this pretty regularly, at least once a week, you know, or or daily if I can help it. Uh, just kind of see, you know, what popped up, what really went on, what I could have done a little differently, and how that might affect my, um, you know, my overall state of mind and eventually my sobriety if I let it. My work week went really well. I've, I've really enjoyed the job so far that I got. But I'm still kind of struggling getting back into the habit of going to bed on time, getting up early, going to the gym. I'm struggling a little bit with like my physical shape and the fact that I'm struggling with that and need to get back in the gym is is starting to and I'm not getting back in the gym is starting to kind of like have a rollover effect. And this was something that I was kind of explaining to my friend is when things are good, when things are going well, we have to keep good, you know, doing the work. We can't always just like only do the work when things are bad, only reach out to people when things are bad. And then when things are good, like, you know, forget all about that stuff. Just just relish in the fact that things are good and things aren't bad. They're still good. So I can see them potentially going bad. So I'm struggling a little bit with like some weight gain. I'm struggling a little bit with like my physical appearance, not like in a sense that I don't feel like I'm appealing or something like that, but I'm getting older, you know, and it's starting to be a parent having to come to terms with that. You know, that's just a part of the the struggle of life, I guess. But what I really enjoy about my job is that it doesn't seem to be a factor. It doesn't seem to matter that I'm learning something basically brand new. I, I, this late in life, you know, my, my guy, the guy that's training me right now is like, he's 26 years old. I could care less. He's not treating me any differently. I'm not treating him any differently. It's really nice. It's kind of refreshing to be, you know, on one hand, kind of dealing with the fact that like, I'm getting older, my body's getting older. But to be in a work environment that doesn't really factor any of that in is pretty cool. That being said, some social interactions are, are, you know, a little troubling, I guess. I've had a friend, somebody I'm trying to get to know as a friend who is really struggling with like communicating at all. Like if there's any kind of like conflict, he dips, he just bounces. He fucking runs away from the conversation, closes down, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And it's really exhausting to deal with. It really reminds me of the friend that I cut out a while ago because of similar interactions, you know, he super sensitive, thinks everything's about him when it's not, takes everything super personally and to an extreme, you know, simple little tiny things. And I found myself getting impatient with that and not really focusing on the fact that maybe they are trying. They, he seems to be. And instead focusing on the fact that this isn't something I want to deal with right now. I've already dealt with this in myself. I've already dealt with this with other friends. This is a very like kind of closed minded way to be in life it just sort of you know assume that everybody fucking hates you in some way or that everybody's out to get you or if a comment they make is about you or is is a slight in some way or being super jealous i just don't have a lot of time for that but at the same time i should still make time for that you know the he's a good person i can tell he is he's not 
malicious. He's not coming from a bad place. This is all trauma related. He's just got stuff he's got to got to work on. And I found myself really being aggressive in return and not being patient. So that's something I'm definitely, you know, going to going to try to rewrap my head around. Because the last thing I want to do is create a resentment in myself against this person just because they're struggling with something. But also, I don't want to be like the reason for resentment because I don't have any patience for it. And I'm lashing out in return because it's like something I feel like people should be able to get their head around. Forgetting completely that I struggle with shit like this most of my life, you know? So my social interactions overall have been pretty good, though. I've been getting out more. I went to an event um, last night, and it was really fun. You know, there's a lot of drinking and stuff going on. I still just didn't have any interest in drinking at all. Um, but that did raise up something that I used to struggle with that I, I don't feel like I am as much. I'm four months out of a relationship, I think. I think that's right. And usually around this time, I'd be like, downloading the dating apps and like getting back out there because I'd be lonely and I wouldn't want to be alone. And I have prospects. There's people that are really interested in me, but I'm not, when I weigh up that against like what I want to do, it doesn't weigh up and I'm not willing to sacrifice the things that I want to do. It's as simple as that. Some of it is just me not doing anything productive at all. Yesterday, I, I recently got a, a VR headset and I got a new graphics card. And yesterday, that's what I did. I fucked and played around with my computer shit and played video games. And in my brain, the, these two people are communicating with me. And in my brain, I'm like, I would rather do this right now. I would rather mess around with this, not have a time limit on it, not have to feel like I'm, you know, neglecting someone's needs or wants uh, to just play with my computer stuff. Nerd out for a little bit. So now neither person that I I see as a, a potential are in a good place. They're definitely not in a good place. They're actually really similar to my ex, uh, the one that was crazy, not crazy. I don't like using that term. The one that was really harmful for me, not in like that they are bad people, but that they are dealing with a lot of like constant and consistent emotional issues all the time. Like there's always something, but they're both really attractive. They're both very interested in me. And three years ago, two years ago, I probably would have jumped all over that uh, just because they were interested. And now I'm like looking at the actual pros and cons of the situation. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I think it's better if we remain friends. I think that's better long term. I don't need a quick fix uh, to my emotional state. I'm perfectly okay with being alone right now. Yes, it gets lonely. Yes, there are times where like I just want to cuddle up with somebody on the couch. But I don't want to give up my free time to do that anymore. I don't want to give up the other stuff to do that anymore. Eventually, yes, I'd like to merge the things together, the things that I'm interested in and people that might um, share that interest. But I do not want to do that now. And I'm kind of proud of myself because there's one I could have like captain. I could have swooped in and, and saved the day and white knighted my way into this person's like situation. And instead, I offered up reasonable friends, friendly support and kept my distance. And I, I think that's the smartest thing I could have done. And, um, you know, I'm really happy that I, I didn't have to really think about it. Like, it wasn't like I, I wasn't have to remind myself, you know, that, no, this isn't going to be good because X, Y, Z. It just was like my natural state right now is I am satisfied with where I'm at. I am not ready to date. I, I am not ready to be done with the previous relationship in a way that would allow me to date. I am not ready to move on from my little goofy, happy life. You know, I have some money that I'm going to be putting towards some credit cards. I'm going to be paying a bunch of stuff down. I did treat myself to a couple things, but my wants and needs are so minimal that, you know, that's going to be good for now. Like, you know, my computer is something that I really have enjoyed putting together. And this was like the last little component that I've been holding off on. You know, the, the market for that kind of stuff sucks and it's going to suck for another couple of years. I saw a decent deal. So I went for it. 
but the rest of the stuff is going to be going to bills. It's going to be going to like creating some peace in my world, more peace than I've already been experiencing. And I don't want to bring in that kind of like hassle, I guess, you know, of getting to know someone and figuring out if I like them and figuring out if they like me and then figuring out like, you know, if they have the the type of lifestyle I would like to, you know, merge my life into and, you know, seeing what they're learning about their home life. And I'm not saying that I don't enjoy that stuff. I'm, I'm, a, I love people's stories, but I am saying that, um, the idea of going down that path in a romantic se- uh, sense right now is, sounds really exhausting and it isn't what I need right now. So I'm willfully looking out for my own needs without it being like, I don't feel like I am denying myself something, which is how it used to be. My relationships were a form of escapism. They were a way for me to just not deal with my shit. And so this is a good sign that I'm not quite done dealing with some shit. And I'm I'm willing to do that in a healthy way. So I guess, I mean, overall, what I seem to be doing lately, the last few months, really, is working. I'm I'm working an internal program. Like I'm not I'm not um I'm not really going to meetings. I, I haven't met with my sponsor in a little while. I'm not outside of reading the literature for this, I'm not really participating in AA. Um, even online. It's not, again, it's not that I have anything against the program. I think the program is great for people. I think I've just been creating kind of a hybrid thing that works for me, which was what people say to do with the program. Take, take what works and leave the rest. And since I've sort of, I've actually built a, my own little community of people that care about me and support me in my decision not to drink, but have allowed me to live with, just live has really done a lot for me. Not saying that there's anything wrong with the fellowship. Like I really appreciate that at any point I can join the fellowship and be be a participant in that stuff. But, and some of the people that are in my little community of friends are in their own version of recovery. Some are drug recovery, some are alcohol recovery, or at least have experienced it in some way. None of them would support me drinking. You know what I mean? Like they wouldn't stop me, but they would probably they'd probably have a conversation with me about it. Like, Hey, is this really what you want? Like, this seems like something that is against what you've been about for a while. You know? So like when I go out with them, I feel safe and I feel like that they, they don't treat me any differently because of my decision not to drink. I'm just a part of their group and they're my friends. Like we hang out, you know, and that's what fellowship is, right? Like we see each other regularly. If I need something, they're there for me. If they need something, I'm there for them. And I think that's allowed me to kind of move away a little bit from, from AA. And not saying that anybody who can't do this is doing something wrong or that they're failing at life in a certain way. My personal struggles were of a social nature. And so I have worked extra hard to make friends, quite simply. So, you know, the fact that I have those friends and I can rely on them and I don't necessarily need the the fellowship of AA has also allowed me to see some things about AA that I don't necessarily like for myself. And I have some things about some of those groups that don't really work for me. And some of the aspects of the program that are sort of toxic that I can kind of leave alone if I don't feel like is a part of like what I'm doing. So, you know, these check-ins that I've been doing, I've been trying to keep my consistent pattern of, I, I read my intro. I start off with like, how's things going this week? Something maybe that initially or, or specifically that I'm working on, uh, that relate relates to AA or to recovery and then, you know, the rest of it. I mean, that's, that's been the goal, but lately I've been noticing that my check-ins have had less to do with like specifically recovery and more to do with just like shit that's going on. So I don't know where everybody's at with that. I don't know if this is turning into like, 
you know, me just going off about my life and maybe that's just not something people are into. Maybe me moving away from the program is affecting some people. I don't want me talking about my journey to be harmful to someone else. And I know that I'm not responsible for how people take the things that I say, but I am responsible for shaping this in a way that is helpful for the majority. And so please reach out so far. Everybody who's reached out has had great things to say, but it's slowly changing. The program that I created here, my version of this has slowly started changing. So if anything has changed, if people are starting to feel like, you know, maybe I don't want to listen anymore, whatever is going on with you guys, let, let me know reach out to me. You know, Facebook is probably the easiest way. Um, an atheist reads the big book of AA. You can, you can message me directly via that. It reaches me. I don't share this with anybody. I share like a very, Hey, someone said something nice about my podcast kind of a way. I don't go into any kind of specifics and the same for the emails and, uh, one atheist in AA at gmail.com, you know? So if this just isn't the direction you feel like this thing should go, you know, while this is my story and this is like how I perceive and interpret this literature and, you know, the journey of recovery, this is for you guys. This is for everybody listening and gals and whatever, you know, whatever other ways I could express that. This is not, f this helps me stay sober, but I'm doing this now for whoever might be listening. So if there, you know, again, if there's any other recovery programs that you're curious about, and maybe I can actually do like I said and start doing the work on learning about this kind of stuff um, so we can explore this stuff together. Let me know. Um, I still am on the fence about having guests on as much as I want to have guests on. They would I, I would only really be able to do these interviews on the weekend. So I don't know if like it's going to be a every other week kind of thing or or what. Uh, my availability is really tricky at work right now. I work in a place I'm 45 minutes away from my job sometimes. There are days where I get home, it takes two hours because of the traffic. It's just very weird and spotty. I'm in like two bottlenecks on my way there. And so that kind of makes it a little difficult to schedule anything in a reasonable time, you know, and that's partly an excuse. Uh, but mainly it's like me forward thinking and, th and feeling that if I go down the path of having guests on and I stop being able to do that, uh, then it'll be, you know, some kind of a failure. So I'm on the fence about that. Um, it could be that I just have guests on very randomly and then just continue to speak. But then I'm worried that like, I'm just going to ramble if I don't have anything to read and to kind of prompt me, you know, there's, there's articles on AA beyond belief that I could probably read some other secular stuff, you know, that's not necessarily, uh, from the literature, you know, things that I can, I can kind of express my take on. I feel like that's like more my style anyways, is having something I can riff on than to just come up with because I start to repeat myself and start going around in circles. Like I'm pretty sure if I listen back on this, I would, you know, it kind of got a little rambly, but I, uh, sort of a crossroads, right? I mean, we're getting into the last few weeks basically of the 12 by 12. So that leaves, you know, what comes next? I'm not really sure. Honestly, I expected that I was going to read the big book and then like, that was it. So maybe I'll read some stories out of there. That That's something I could definitely go off of. We'll see. Uh, for now, um, let's get into the Daily Stoic and then step seven, I believe. January 11th, if you want to be unsteady. For if a person shifts their caution to their own reason choices and the acts of those choices, they will at the same time gain the will to avoid. But if they shift their caution away from their own reason choices to things not under their control, Seeking to avoid what is controlled by others, they will then be agitated, fearful, and unstable. Epictetus, 
Discourses 2.1.12. The image of the Zen philosopher and the monk up in the green, quiet hills or in a beautiful temple on some rocky cliff. The Stoics are the antithesis of this idea. Instead, they are the man in the marketplace, the senator in the forum, the brave wife waiting for the soldier to return from battle, the sculptor busy in her studio. Still, the Stoic is equally at peace. Pictetus is reminding you that serenity and stability are results of your choices and judgment, not your environment. If you seek to avoid all disruptions to tranquility, other people, external events, stress, you will never be stressful. Your problems will follow you wherever you run and hide. But if you seek to avoid the harmful and disruptive judgments that cause these problems, then you'll be able, uh, you'll be stable and steady wherever you happen to be. Well, that just goes, I mean, this is one of those like tropey things that are in the program, right? The, um, wherever I go, there I am. I actually, I actually really like that one. And I've always sort of gravitated to that because I do, I get it. This, this actually reminds me of a conversation I was having with a friend who's was complaining because they seem to find the same kind of people. They always end up with the same kind of people in relationships. And I was like, I asked them specifically, well, what are you doing to change that? The answer seemed to be all external stuff, like changing their clothes so that they can attract, I guess, more of the same. Like they, they didn't really have, there was nothing about like changing where they looked, giving different people a chance, reaching out and maybe opening up to a type of woman that they don't usually find themselves gravitating towards. You know, they, they, they were stuck in, this is my type, this is what I'm going to go after. And then they were surprised that the result that that's what they ended up with. Nothing about them changed. And it, it just, I mean, that's sort of the same. It's kind of a stretch, right? I mean, it's sort of the same thing though. If nothing about you changes, then nothing about you changes. Like nothing is going to be different. You're not going to get different results if you don't focus on yourself. That's what you can change. You can't make different people like you. You can't attract different people towards you if nothing about you is changing. You can change your clothes all you want. You can cut your hair a different way. You can put different, you know, pictures up. But you're you're always going to attract the same kind of people if everything about you internally is the same. You know, some of this is also in relation to getting so. You know, we'll take it back a little bit. We'll get away from the the relationship stuff. So really, what this is saying, what that phrase "wherever I go, there I am" is saying is for me when when I got sober. If I didn't make when I got sober, I didn't make a lot of the changes right away that I needed to, and so nothing about me had really changed. And so I was running into the same problems in life, you know, the, the same work problems, the same interpersonal relationship problems, the same, same problems with, with friends or non-friends or whatever it was, like not connecting with people or the finance problems, like, cause nothing had actually changed, even though I quit drinking it, it I wasn't working on any of the stuff that was the cause, the underlying cause of any of that. And I was still focused on changing, changing all these external things that I didn't really have control over or complaining about those things without making an effort to change them, like my job or, you know, relationship I was in or whatever it was. But as I started making real changes to myself, then those things changed. I, I got a job that is a better fit, not just because like my attitude about the job is better right? It's not like it's a shitty job and I'm just making it out to be a good one. It's actually a really good fit for me. And that happened because I grew away from the person that I was, you know, in a way that presented me with these new opportunities. And that same thing was happening. The same thing happened with relationships and friendships. And so now, yeah, wherever I go, there I am. But now the person I am is attracting certain things in my little world. I have 
for the most part, peace and serenity about my situations. And that causes kind of a, a butterfly effect to those around me. I'm not always successful with that. And sometimes I have like an abrasiveness to me that, that can cause issues. And that's the part that I usually try to like um, look at at the end of the week or try to like come uh, come to terms with. Like, hey, this was, you know, I said this because I get like attached to an idea and I feel like others need to hear it. And that was harmful. And now I have to like do some cleanup. Like it's never perfect. I'm never like exactly who I need to be every single day and every single moment. But that's the goal. The less I start, the less I obsessively focus on what other people think of me, what other people are doing, events and and circumstances that I just simply can't control. The less I stop focusing on that stuff and just prepare myself for everything in in a healthy way, the better, the better off I am, the better I am able to handle situations that used to baffle me, quite honestly. And this some of the stuff about the book that I like is that's exactly what it's trying to do. It's trying to detach yourself from uh, the things you can't change, you know? It's a very stoic approach to that kind of um, ideal. Like, well, you know, I can't make my boss do anything that they don't want to do. You know, I can do a good job. That's it. That's all I can affect. I can do a really good job. And if I do a really good job, then maybe good things will happen. If they don't, then I change my situation. But I keep working on myself. And I keep doing it. Like, like the verse, the version that it said, between the Zen monk, which is fine if that's the way that you want to do it. To me, it seems like avoidance. And, you know, the Stoic is like, well, we understand that people are just people. They're going to live in, like, the world and just be people. Avoiding isn't always an option. Living up in the mountains isn't always an option. Sometimes you have to find that peace when you're being yelled at on the other side of the register. So if nothing changes, nothing changes. Pretty straightforward. I like it. I dig it. Uh, and it seems to be working. It really does. You know, I was having that conversation with a friend who the, I, I think I mentioned in the last episode has really been struggling. And they reached out. Well, they didn't reach out to me specifically, but I gave him a post letting him know if you ever need to talk, you know, hit me up. And seeing this person struggling with things that I've already struggled with and, and feeling like maybe on the, I'm on the other side of and seeing that I'm able to help that person and then seeing that that person might go on to help somebody else. Like that's what I'm doing this for to help that next person to be in a good enough place that people see the things I have to offer as like things I have to offer. And it just seems to affect change around me just being that way. It's not fake. I'm not having to tell people my character it just exists not having to convince people uh, of anything. It just happens. And just doing things for other people is still like number one on that list. That's what I can change. I can't make somebody be happier. I can't, I can't fix their situation for them, but I can still help my friends and be there for my friends. Even if it's like my fun hobby stuff, or even if it's like just making them laugh, whatever it is, like just the fact that I'm able to be there for my friends, that's the change that I needed to make. All right. Step seven's a little beefy. It's not too bad. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. So how do, how do we do that as an atheist? How do we do that as an agnostic or a non-believer? What are we asking to remove these shortcomings? This, uh, what being the universe? I just asked myself, I didn't feel it necessary to ask a, a, an entity I was the only one holding on to this shit. So I asked myself to let go. That's all I did. I asked. Because if we if we look back at the rest of this stuff, made a list. That's all it was asking. Make the list. Don't think about what comes next. Don't think about what you're going to do with the list. Just make it. The next step, share it with somebody. Don't don't get hung up on like the the meat of what's in there. Just say the words aloud to somebody else. That's all that's really needed. You know, and then after that, it was 
just being ready to no longer carry this shit around. That's it. That's all it's asking. This step, ask yourself to let go of this shit. If you've done it, if you've done it up to this point and you're honest and you see these things, that's all this is asking. Just just ask yourself, can I let go of this? Can I can I let go of this? You're not telling yourself, you're not put, you know, you're not you hopefully whoever is working this with me is past that point of talking to themselves like they're just dog shit and instead of saying things like how can i improve this how can i be better i did a stupid thing i'm not stupid i am struggling with this i am not a piece of shit because i am kind of stuff hopefully we're at that point so at this step this is what we're asking ourselves can i let go of all the stuff i just worked on pay attention to those words can i please let go of this stuff Nothing is attached to that. There isn't a, now that I've said that, this, this, and this is going to happen. Now that I've asked myself to let go of this stuff, I'm absolved of it. I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's never going to be an issue again. That's not any of this. And, And it's not that because I've asked myself to let go of this stuff, that because some of it's still around that I have failed this step or that I'm no longer a part of the community or that I fucked things up somehow. None of that's true. All this step is asking, to me, all this step is asking, is that you look at yourself, ask yourself, can I please let go of this stuff? I don't need to carry this shit anymore. Can I put it down? Since this step is so specifically concerns itself with humility, we should pause here to consider what humility is and what the practice of it can mean to us. Indeed, the attainment of greater humility is the foundational principle of each of AA's 12 steps. For without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. Nearly all AAs have found, too, that unless they develop much more of this precious quality than many than may be required just for sobriety, they still haven't much chance of becoming truly happy. Without it, they cannot live to much useful purpose or in adversity be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. Humility as a word and as an ideal has a very bad time of it in our world. Not only is the idea misunderstood, the word itself is often intensely disliked. Many people haven't even a nodding acquaintance with humility as a way of life. Much of the everyday talk we hear, and a great deal of what we read, highlights man's pride in his own achievements. And you'll see this in the programs. This is part of the thing that I don't like about the programs. You'll see people acting in a way that is quote-unquote in humility and being humble, but it's like a humble brag. It's like, oh, look, I'm being so humble by doing this thing. You know, and it'll be stuff like keeping the program, you know, running a a couple meetings or doing coffee for a couple sessions or keeping the books on the meeting hall or, you know, some folks that that becomes their life, they revolve their recovery around the attention of those tasks, you know, making the virtue signal as loud as possible. And, you know, that's not everybody in the meetings, but I'm sure everybody is like, that's listening is like, yeah, I know people like that. I know people like that. So what even the importance of bringing that up, the, the reason I would is our humility is understanding that that's what they need right now and that we don't have to get caught up in that, that I don't have to get caught up in this drama. If somebody's like this and I can tell they're being toxic or something, I don't have to be the one that gets involved. I don't have to act like I know everything and know how to fix all the situations and all the problems. I can be the humble one and just acknowledge that that's the kind of person they are right now and that it doesn't have to affect me kind of kind of off off topic a little bit but um sort of plays in line with this idea of like front loading this with the um the humility thing with great intelligence men of science have been forcing nature to disclose her secrets the immense resources now being harnessed promise such a quantity of material blessings that many have come to believe that a man-made millennium lies just ahead 
poverty will disappear and there will be such abundance that everybody can have all the security and personal satisfactions he desires. The, th the theory seems to be that once everybody's primary instincts are satisfied, there won't be much left to quarrel about. The world will then turn happy and be free to concentrate on cultural and uh, culture and character solely by their own intelligence and labor. <laughs> men will have shaped their own destiny. Well, shit, man, this this kind of talk will get you cast out as a communist. Nowadays, we've come full full fucking circle. People calling anybody who wants this kind of a, a worldview part of the red wave. Yeah, it's great, great idea. Love it. I love the idea of the, of us not having to like kill ourselves for things, you know. But uh, our society is not built on such such idealism. So I, it's weird that this was, you know, the kind of language that they were using in 1930 something, or I guess 50 at this point, you know, now that would just get you cast out. Certainly no alcoholic and surely no member of AA wants to deprecate material achievement, nor do we enter into debate with the many who still so passionately cling to the belief that to satisfy our basic nature, desi natural desires is the main object of life. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Like... So I was reading this this uh, kind of I think it was just a post, honestly. And somebody was pointing out that, you know, if you look at rich kids, the, the kids that like don't have to work and they can go to school and do whatever they want, the majority of them end up seeming to choose art. You know, not the ones that get forced into some kind of a business thing because that's what their parents want. The ones that are like, you do whatever you want. They end up, they you know, it's rich kids in schools like that and art schools and they they are the ones that end up, not all of them, obviously people create art all the time that aren't rich. But if you look at like when left to their own devices as, as younger folks growing into themselves, they, they tend to go creative. And someone was saying that just proves that if you weren't forced to make things uh, to work, that your you know default setting would be to create art. And again, that's not everybody. Not everybody's artistic. Some people like to work. They like to toil the earth and they like to work with their hands and they like to build things and like to make things. And while that I would argue is a sense of creativity and involves the same kind of processes, um, that seems to be the case. I mean, I would, if I were not having to work, I'd fucking make things or, or at least consume things and enjoy that. And there's a, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, I think once if we could reach to the point to where our natural basic desires were were satisfied, a lot of us would choose less materialistic things. But we are sure that no class of people in the world ever made a wrong mess of trying to live by this formula than alcoholics. This is the formula of, um, you know, being driven by material gains. For thousands of years, we have been demanding more than our share of security, prestige, and romance. When we seemed to be succeeding, we drank the, uh, to dream still greater dreams. When we were frustrated, even in part, we drank for oblivion. Never was there enough of what we thought we wanted. In all these strivings, so many of them well-intentioned, our crippling handicap had been our lack of humility. We had lacked the perspective to see that character building and spiritual values had to come first, and that material satisfactions were not the purpose of living. Quite characteristically, we had gone all out in confusing the ends with the means, instead of regarding the satisfaction of, material, of our material desires as the means by which we could live and function as human beings. We had taken these satisfactions to be the final end and aim of life. It's interesting. So the friend that I'm working with, he's kind of stuck in this right now. He makes a lot of, he makes really good money, really, really good money. 
in comparison to the kind of money I've ever made. He's not super like driven by material. I can tell just by having talked with it. I never knew what he really did for work. I didn't know that he was that well off, that he made that kind of money. Usually when people are driven by that stuff, they wear it in a way that you can tell. This person never came across that way. I never felt like a sense of uh, him judging us based on that. Like, you know what I mean? You you can kind of hear it when you talk with people. They'll say things that you know they say in the company of people that make that kind of money, regardless of who they're with. Like, you know, the kind of people that are like, oh, we went to the symphony last week and we ate down at uh, Jake's steakhouse afterwards and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And most people can't afford that kind of shit. He's not one of the person, he's never really approached that kind of like topic at all. So he's never really struck me as somebody that's, that's that way. And so when we were talking, he's like, yeah, I make, I make all this money and, you know, I live in this, this nice fancy apartment downtown. He's describing his life. And I was like, none of that sounds like the kind of person that I've grown to know you as you don't strike me as somebody that's materialistically driven. And he's like, yeah, I seem I'm kind of forcing it because I've always been poor. And, you know, in the process of this, he's telling me how unhappy he is. So he's got all this stuff that people typically want or, t- or say they want, and he's still extremely unhappy. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, living in my little room, fucking barely making any money, got just hand-me-downs and goodwill shit. And, you know, just I'm definitely happier than this person is at the moment. And I've never really been one to go after money things. So it's interesting to see somebody who has all that stuff, who was felt driven by it, but not really of that world, if that makes sense. Like they've been driven by this materialistic, like they've been driven by materialistic things that they didn't didn't even really want. They just thought they were supposed to have. Very strange. Very interesting. So I'm going to take a quick just second to kind of apologize for how rambly I've been in this episode and like my thoughts aren't really being strung together very well. I, even though like emotionally and stuff, I'm doing really well. Like I've, I've had like this kind of persistent health issue and it's just being exasperated by the fact that the last couple of days I have not gotten a lot of sleep. So my brain is really mushy feeling right now. Um, tying, tying thoughts together seems to be kind of a struggle. Uh, the episode needs to get done. So I'm just going to kind of work through it, but it also means that I'm going to start one place thinking I'm going to go to A and I'm going to end up at fucking F. Not sure how I got there and forget all about, you know, the original destination. Uh, and I do apologize for that. I'll do my best. I just, you know, it's uh, it's definitely something I've been kind of struggling with. The other day I had like incredible vertigo. I've never had vertigo that bad where it, like I felt heavy. I felt like somebody was pushing my head down. It was very strange. This was before I was messing with my VR stuff. I didn't have that yet. That hasn't helped like being obsessed with this new video game thing. You know, it sounds like a shitty reason for me to be like mush brain, but it's all compounding to create kind of a mess up in my head right now. So um, while things are going well, I uh, health wise, I'm not at the best. So it's, it's affecting my cognitive abilities, I guess. So uh, with that being said, back to the, the read. All right. I took a little bit of a break. It's the next day. I felt pretty good today. I don't think I'm going to be as rambly. I hope most of what I was trying to say made sense. I feel like I repeated myself quite a bit, and uh, hopefully we're, we're a little past that. True, most of us thought good character was desirable, but obviously good character was something one needed to get on with the business of self-satisfied. With a proper display of honesty and morality, we'd stand a better chance of getting what we really wanted. But whenever we had to choose between character and comfort, the character building was lost in the dust of our chase after what we thought was happiness. Seldom did we look at character building as something desirable in itself, something we would like to strive for whether our instinctual needs were met or not. We never thought of making honesty, tolerance, and true love of man and God the daily basis of living. 
I think that's important. The daily business of living. Like I so often find myself uh, doing well, things are going well, and I stop working. I don't really, I, not as often. This is this is less and less becoming an issue. I've made it kind of a habit to, like I said, check in regularly, daily if I can, weekly if not, um, if I don't think about it or, or whatever's going on, you know, just to see where I'm at with things. This kind of stuff I didn't always do when I was feeling good about how I felt my life was going. I would just stop doing that stuff. I would just stop working on myself until the next crisis. It does. It takes a daily effort, even if it's small. This lack of anchorage to any permanent values, this blindness to the true purpose of our lives, produced another bad result for just so long as we were convinced that we could live exclusively by our own individual strength and intelligence for just that long was a working faith and a higher power impossible. This was true even when we believed that God existed. We could actually have earnest religious beliefs which remained barren because we were still trying to play God ourselves. As long as we placed self-reliance first, a genuine reliance upon a higher power was out of the question. That basic ingredient of all humility, a desire to seek and do God's will, was missing. I mean, it's missing for me. And things seem to be going just fine. For us, the process of gaining a new perspective was unbelievably painful. It was only by repeated humiliations that we were forced to learn something about humility. It was only at the end of a long road, marked by successive defeats and humiliations, and the final crushing of our self-sufficiency, that we began to feel humility as something more than a condition of groveling despair. Every newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous is told and soon realizes for himself that his humble admission of powerlessness over alcohol is his first step toward liberation from its paralyzing grip. So it is that we first see humility as a necessity. But this is the barest beginning. To get completely away from our aversion to the idea of being humble, to gain a vision of humility at the avenue to true freedom as the avenue to true freedom of the human spirit, to be willing to work for humility as something to be desired for itself, takes most of us a long, long time. A whole lifetime geared to self-centeredness cannot be set in reverse all at once. Rebellion dogs are every step at first. I don't think my disinterest in a higher power of believing in God is rebellion. And, and, and so, you know, it's one of those things that kind of irritates me when I feel like that's what people seem to think it is, that I'm just like doing it to do it, like just to be contrary. That's just not the case. When we have finally admitted without reservation that we are powerless over alcohol, we are apt to breathe a great sigh of relief saying, well, thank God that's over. I'll never go through that again. Then we learn often to our consternation that this is only the first milestone on the road we are walking. Still goaded by sheer necessity, we reluctantly come to grips with those serious character flaws that made problem drinkers of us in the first place. Flaws which must be dealt with to prevent a retreat into alcoholism once again. We will want to be rid of some of these defects, but in some instances, this will appear to be an impossible job from which we recoil. And we cling with a passionate persistence to others which are just as disturbing to our equilibrium because we still enjoy them too much. How can we possibly summon the resolution and willingness to get rid of such overwhelming compulsions and desires? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to get rid of the things that you've been using as a defense against the pain you feel inside. This, you know, getting rid of these defects isn't an easy thing. One, they're not defects. Looking at them as if they're defects is, I think, counterintuitive. It makes it feel like this is, again, this is shame-based. It's not really the case. Changing undesirable behaviors is an important thing. Like we learn this through life and we're finally, hopefully, removing a lot of the things that we had to protect with these undesirable behaviors. But again, we are driven on by the inescapable conclusion which we draw from AA experience that we surely must 
try with a will or else fall by the wayside. At this stage of our progress, we are under heavy pressure and coercion to do the right thing. We are obliged to choose between the pains of trying and the certain penalties of failing to do so. These initial steps along the road are taken grudgingly, yet we do take them. We may still have no very high opinion of humility as a desirable personal virtue, but we do recognize it as a necessary aid to our survival. I mean, I would hope that most people feel like humility is a desirable personal virtue. I can see that some people may think what they have is humility when it's really not those virtue signaling types that do it for some sort of a reward. You know, that's different. Um, but I would, I would hope that most people are like, yeah, I want to be humble. I want to act, you know, with humility through life. Most people don't choose not to just to be an asshole. Most people, I feel, do this again out of like some sort of trauma response. Most of these things are some kind of trauma response, some sort of survival response to things that happened in our past. But when we have taken a square look at some of these defects, have discussed them with another, and have become willing to have them removed, our thinking about humility commences to have a wider meaning. By this time, in all probability, we have gained some measure of release from our more devastating handicaps. We enjoy moments in which there is something like real peace of mind. To those of us who have hitherto known only excitement, depression, or anxiety, in other words, to all of us, this newfound peace is a priceless gift. I mean, that's to suggest that we've never felt peace of mind before coming to AA, and I don't think that's true either. Something new, indeed, has been added. Where humility had formerly stood for a forced feeding on humble pie, it now begins to mean the nourishing ingredient which can give us serenity. I do think that's true. That feeling of serenity and peace only comes for me when I do for others, without reward, like without seeking reward. When I'm just kind to people in my life, including myself, very much including myself, if I'm not kind to myself and I'm kind to others, then it feels a little bit more forced, but it ends up resulting in me feeling a little bit more kind about myself. So, you know, to me, that's what comes first, being kind to others, if I can help it. It doesn't always mean that I'm successful. Just just today, I realized that I had been getting into an online argument with somebody. Fucking one, an online argument never results in anything good. I've gone over that a few times. Uh, but two... You know, the person struggles with schizophrenia and some other ailments. And I was just basically attacking them because I felt like I had the moral high ground and was like proving him wrong and like showing him the error in his ways. One, it's not my fucking job, right? So I was completely outside of my serenity and I wasn't ha acting in humility. I wasn't acting in peacefulness. I wasn't just being kind. I was like all but demanding that this person change their point of view. It was, it was pretty fucking ridiculous. And now I've got, you know, got some work to do with that. Got to figure out the best way to approach that and, and apologize in a way that's not like demeaning. You know, I can't be like, Hey, I, you know, because you're schizophrenic now I feel bad. Like that's not the point. The point is you shouldn't, st I shouldn't start shit with people without, you know, at all, honestly. I mean, there's some things you should stand up for and like some things I feel like I'll always kind of stand my ground on, but this wasn't one of them. This was just sort of like your viewpoint sucks and I'm going to tell you why. I didn't, I didn't act curious. I was acting judgmental. Yeah, I'm not really happy with that. So that's going to be something I'm going to fix. Uh, but that, that comes from this idea of like, you know, acting outside of humility, acting outside of, of, uh, reasonableness, my reason choice. Uh, brought me to this sort of like weird argument with somebody who ultimately ended up being on the bad end of, of an ailment that's really fucking difficult to deal with and, and very hard to uh, overcome uh, reasonably, you know. Had I been considerate of the fact that I don't know what other people's struggles are, 
I wouldn't have acted like that in the beginning, and it wouldn't have mattered if they were schizophrenic or not. It just makes it worse that they are a schizophrenic, probably struggling, like I'll never understand, and I just made it worse. So, yeah. Uh, this improved perception of humility starts another revolutionary change in our outlook. Our eyes begin to open the immense values which have come straight out of painful ego puncturing. Until now, our lives have been largely devote, devoted to running from pain and problems. We fled from them as from a plague. We never wanted to deal with the fact of suffering. Escape via the bottle was always our solution. Character building through suffering might be all right for saints, but it certainly de didn't appeal to us. Then in AA, we looked and listened. Everywhere, we saw failure and misery transformed by humility into priceless assets. We heard story after story of how humility had brought strength out of weakness. In every case, pain had been the price of admission into a new life. But this admission price had purchased more than we expected. It brought a measure of humility, which we soon discovered to be a healer of pain. We began to fear pain less and desire humility uh, more than ever. During this process of learning more about humility, the most profound result of all was the change in our attitude toward God. And this was true whether we had been believers or unbelievers. We began to get over the idea that the higher power was a sort of a Bush League pinch hitter to be called upon only in an emergency. The notion that we would still live our own lives, God helping a little now and then, began to evaporate. Many of us who had thought ourselves religious awoke to the limitations of this attitude. Refusing to place God first, we had deprived ourselves of his help. But now the words of myself, I am nothing, the father doeth the work, began to carry bright promise and meaning. Yeah, clearly I'm not going to really participate in that paragraph in my own recovery. Like what I can say is that while internally that this program, any program, any form of recovery that I might practice is reliant heavily upon the fact that it's me doing this work, I can't focus on self. I focus on myself to be better but I can't, I cannot f uh, focus everything inward. I fix my insides so that I can be better outside. But that means I have to actually be better outside. Like I was saying before with the gentleman that I was getting into that stupid fucking Facebook argument ab uh, about, which I just like paused my recording to apologize to the guy and admit that I wasn't being curious. I was being judgmental and argumentative and I was attacking him when I shouldn't have been. And I should have been a little bit more interested in like conversing as opposed to just proving him wrong. I don't know if I would have done that if I hadn't been working on this podcast and been reading this stuff. You know what I mean? Because I was so focused on myself. I was so focused on self. I wanted to be right. And I was even like kind of justifying in my head. It's like, well, it's not that big a deal. It's just this online interaction. Like I kind of knew that there was some wrong there. I was still kind of like glossing over it. And that's, that's not, while I'm not speaking of God, right? As this thing that I feel like I can live my life without and I really can't blah, blah, blah. That idea of if I'm so super focused on self and what these, you know, my little defects or whatever they're called, that I'm, I'm no longer practicing this stuff and I'm half-assing it and I'm doing these things that I say that I'm not going to do, then I'm not doing the work. God do with the work, Father do with the work, whatever. I'm not doing the work. If I am not making myself better inside so that I am better outside, it's just lip service at that point. So... You know, I have to keep, that's that daily vigilance and that weekly vigilance, you know, that regular check-in uh, kind of stuff. And to me, that's this paragraph. That's doing this paragraph. Action over words. 
sometimes those actions are words, but rather than just me say to myself, oh, that was a bad thing, and then not doing anything about it, actually doing something about it. We saw we needn't always be bludgeoned and beaten into humility. It could come quite as much from our voluntary reaching for it as it could from unremitting suffering. A great turning point in our lives came when we sought for humility as something we really wanted rather than as something we must have. It marked the time when we could commence to see the full implication of step seven. He humbly asked him to remove our shortcuts. Humility is something we must have. It really honestly is. It's a weird sentence to me. We sought for humility as something we really wanted rather than as something we must have. Uh, interesting. No, it, mu it is something we must have. I must have. As we approach the actual taking of step seven, it might be well if we AAs inquire once more just what our deeper object uh, objectives are. Struggling with some easy stuff here. Each of us would like to live at peace with himself and with his fellows. We would like to be assured that the grace of God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We have seen that character defects based upon short-sighted or unworthy desires are the obstacles that block our path towards these objectives. We now clearly see that we have been making unreasonable demands upon ourselves, upon others, and upon God. And honestly, another way of looking at this, you know, when I said at the beginning, like we have to be able to ask ourselves, can I get rid of this stuff? Can I finally let go of this stuff? Can I please do that for myself and for everybody around me? You know, that that comes from a place of these things no longer serve me. These defenses no longer serve me. I'm not going to continue to allow them to serve me because they don't have a place in my world anymore. So the answer should be yes, I can get rid of these things because I don't need them anymore. I just don't. The work up until this point should make that question easy to answer. But the importance is asking that question in a way that suggests we have the power to get rid of these things and to let these things go, to put these things down and not have to pick them back up again. The chief activator of our defects has been self-centered fear. Primarily fear that we would lose something we already possessed or would fail to get something we demanded. Living upon a basis of unsatisfied demands, we were in a state of continual disturbance and frustration. Therefore, no peace was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing these demands. The difference between a demand and a simple request is plain to anyone. The seventh step is where we make the change in our attitude which permits us, with humility as our guide, to move from ourselves towards others and toward God. The whole emphasis of step seven is on humility. It is really saying to us that we now ought to be willing to try humility in seeking the removal of our other shortcomings, just as we did when we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. If that degree of humility could enable us to find the grace by which such a deadly obsession could be banished, then there must be hope of the same result respecting any other problem we could possibly have. And yeah, I mean, the idea of this step is that by asking, they're removed, or at least the process of removal can begin. But I'm going to be honest, like like I said before, it's not, it's not a fucking night and day thing. You're not going to just wake up from having said, oh yeah, cool, I'm ready to uh, have these things removed from me, and they're gone. It's it's a process. It's a continual process. Uh, and for, like for me, it took... It took a long time. It took a really long time for them to actually, for me to finally just let go of this stuff. And even now, like there's still things, there's still new stuff that crops up that's based on these old things, these old traumas or whatever, this old like habit of being superior, of being mentally fucking, you know, uh, over someone to, to being smarter than whatever things 
I had in my life that forced that to be of importance to the point of fucking arguing with random people online. You know, some of that stuff's still there. It could always persist. This could be something that I could fucking, on my dying bed, be trying to start shit with somebody on Facebook. I don't know, but I do know that I have a process to address this stuff. Sometimes I have to keep putting the things down that I said that I was going to put down a step seven years later because I picked them back up. Fuck, who knows why? Could be any reason. There's no reason that today I decided to start this online argument as opposed to two weeks ago. You know, there's none. I, uh, it, there's no like I can't I can obsess over the what led to this right now or I can just look at, OK, you know what? Um, I know this is based on something that's probably potentially never going to be fully resolved. The best I can do is work through this right now, stand up for what I believe in by apologizing uh, exactly the way that I know that I should not like backhanded, uh, you know, sideways kind of an apology, but an actual apology that I'm going to do better and just work on doing better. That's all I could fucking do. Um, But obsessing over like, where did that come from? In this instance, wouldn't really do me any good. I probably already know. Who knows? Like what childhood thing happened uh, overall? But I'm sure that it's based on a trauma. And the only way to really absolve that is to keep chipping away at this stuff, using those tools. Sometimes it's better to not get in the argument. Sometimes the argument happens. You got to fucking, you know, own up to it or whatever the situation is. Tradition seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. I I like to point to this step when people say that AA is just like some sort of a weird pyramid scheme, culty thing, and they're just trying to make a bunch of money. They won't even take government money. They pay taxes. They really only survive on the donations of the members and book sales. That's it. You know, people find their sobriety and they end up donating things that the organization just didn't really ask for. And a lot of the times those look like houses. And I've seen that. Um, But AA itself doesn't actually own the houses, usually. At least not the ones here in Portland. They're in an estate somewhere. And that's just the rule of the estate. So, I don't know. I I like to point out this one is... uh, I mean, it seems like real bad business practice to not accept contributions from other organizations that would gladly contribute. I mean, that seems like bad business if you're in the money, you know, in the mood for trying to make money. Self-supporting alcoholics? Who had ever heard such a thing? Yet we find that's what we have to be. This principle is telling evidence of the profound change that AA has wrought in all of us. Everybody knows that active alcoholics scream that they have no troubles money can't cure. Always, we've had our hands out. Time out of mind, we've been dependent upon somebody, usually money-wise. When a society composed entirely of alcoholics says it's going to pay its bills, that's really news. Probably no AA tradition had the labor pains this one did. In early times, we were all broke. When you add to this the habitual supposition that people ought to give money to alcoholics trying to stay sober, it can be understood why we thought we deserved a pile of folding money. What great things AA would be able to do with it. But oddly enough, people who had money thought otherwise. They figured that it was high time we now, sober, paid our own way. So our fellowship stayed poor because it had to. I mean, let's be honest, the fellowship isn't poor. But there is a reason why most of these meetings are held in like church basements and stuff. While not a contribution, most of those places will either forego rent or charge a very small amount. In fact, I don't think I've ever been in an AA meeting that did not pay rent of some kind to be there, even if it was only $10. But there is a reason why, for the most part, these meetings are held in in some pretty lower, lower tier places. Because, you know, basements of churches are cheap and sometimes drunks don't have money. So if you only scrub together $2 and that's all you have to pay the rent that month, you know, that's just what it's going to hopefully be. 
some place, you know, one of the meetings I go to regularly, it's like $20 a meeting. So, you know, monthly it adds up. But if we're not pulling all that money in, uh, you know, from donations and stuff like that, usually they'll work something out, you know, because of the kind of work that we do. But it doesn't come from a place of give us this thing for free because we're doing good things. We all the meetings I've participated in in some some business fashion do our best to pay and to be, you know, on time and regular with those payments. It's never a begging of uh, give us these things for free. There was another reason for our collective poverty. It was soon apparent that while alcoholics would spend lavishly on 12-step cases, they had a terrific aversion to dropping money into a meeting place hat for group purposes. We were astounded to find that we were as tight as the bark on a tree, whatever that means. So AA, the movement, started and stayed broke, while its individual members waxed prosperous. Alcoholics are certainly all-or-nothing people. Our reactions to money prove this. As AA emerged from its infancy into adolescence, we swung from the idea that we needed vast sums of money to the notion that AA shouldn't have any. On every lip were the words, you can't mix AA and money. We shall have to separate the spiritual from the material. We took this violent new tact because here and there, members had tried to make money out of their AA connections, and we feared we'd be exploited. Now and then, grateful benefactors had endowed clubhouses, and as a result, there was sometimes outside interference in our affairs. Yeah, I mean, you start having assets like that, of course there would be. Especially because there's so many different kinds of people in AA, there's going to be that one person that's like, I can flip that house and make us even more money, and then that becomes their primary concern, is making more money, and not fucking staying sober. We had been presented with a hospital, and almost immediately the donor's son became its principal patient and would-be manager. One AA group was given $5,000 to do with what it would. The hassle over that chunk of money played havoc for years. Frightened by these complications, some groups refused to have a cent in their treasuries. Uh, for those who don't participate heavily in AA meetings, they just, maybe they just, I'm not saying that quite right. For those that don't participate in the business side of AA meetings, they, you may not know that there is a treasurer. There's there's a position in the meeting, specifically to the group, uh, that is a treasurer. Their job is to take the money that's given up in donations, make sure that it pays the rent, make sure that it pays for coffee, make sure cups, whatever other things, and it goes into a prudent reserve. Whatever's left over goes to the, the general office as a way to kind of keep this whole deal going. If you don't have any money to send to the general office, you don't like get kicked out. They don't fucking care, ultimately. They don't give you a letter back like, you got to try harder wrapping them donations up. It's just what you can what you can donate. There's an amount that they're aiming for, and you can do what you want with that amount. Like, if you can't, you can't. Just fucking as simple as that. Now, when there's a prudent reserve, some places hold a vote, and it is always a vote. Anybody can, who, anybody can attend a, a business meeting, and, and you're encouraged to do so. I encourage everybody to attend just to kind of see the the you know, the business side, the politics side of all this, they hold a vote. And sometimes that vote is, you know, when it's a birthday meeting, should we get a cake? Maybe we should have like a yearly get together. There's a, there's a meeting group out here. I can't remember what they're called. So there's groups and then there's groups of groups, whatever we call those here. Uh, they, they have a yearly thing, a big, huge yearly event where it's like a big fucking barbecue and it's like a swim hole thing that uh, out here by this little park area that we have. It's a huge event. There's like sack, sock races and or sack races, whatever they're called, the sack hop things. And um, 
like fucking well there was probably lawn darts it's not anymore but there's lawn games and there's prizes that can be won and there's you know there's all these things that that happen at this big huge event raffles and all that stuff big big lots of food lots of people just having a good time a big dance party all that stuff and that came from the fact that they were having such a prudent reserve they didn't want to just give all that money to the general services right they couldn't pay like overpay they'd already paid their rent so it turned into this thing well, once a year let's give back to the people that have been giving to us and let's make this a big party but it had to be voted on and then and then the people that were going to be in, uh, involved in running it had to be voted in and it you know it's not just like someone just doesn't walk in and be like okay i'm going to take this money i'll take care of it i do whatever i want with it. it it's all voted on it's all diplomatic sometimes unnecessarily diplomatic but or it seems that way but there's always a purpose Frightened by these complications, some groups refused to have a cent in their treasuries. Despite these misgivings, we had to recognize the fact that AA had to function. Meeting places cost something. To save whole areas from turmoil, small offices had to be set up, telephones installed, and a few full-time secretaries hired. And that's that's another thing that that meeting place did is they actually started, they paid somebody to facilitate the building since the building was its own entity. It wasn't like there was a, it wasn't a church or something like that. It was just a building. So they paid somebody a part-time position to actually oversee that stuff. Uh, the person would be willing to do it for free, but in this case they were paid. And so they had a job now and something to put on their resume and they had job duties and the group oversaw what those duties were typically. And you know, the place acted, it was a business. So it acted like a business. Um, another place has concessions. They sell like energy drinks and Coca-Cola and snacks and shit. Those positions are voluntary. And they're set up that way so people can have a job. Even if it is voluntary, it's a task. It's something they have to be accountable for and responsible for and show up for. You know, these kinds of things are important. Over many protests, these things were accomplished. We saw that if they weren't, the main the man coming in the door couldn't get a break. These simple services would require small sums of money, which we could and would pay ourselves. At last, the pendulum stopped swinging and pointed towards the tradition seven as it reads today. In this connection, Bill likes to tell the following pointed story. I love that he's writing like he's not the one writing this. He explains that when Jack Alexander's Saturday Evening Post piece broke in 1941, thousands of frantic letters from distraught alcoholics and their families hit the foundation letterbox in New York. Our office staff, Bill says, consisted of two people, one devoted secretary and myself. How could this landslide of appeals be met? We'd have to have more full-time help, that was sure. So we asked the AA groups for voluntary contributions. Would they send us a dollar a member a year? Otherwise, this heartbreaking mail would have to go unanswered. To my surprise, the response of the groups was, was slow. I got mighty sore about this. Looking at this avalanche of mail one morning at the office, I paced up and down ranting how irresponsible and tightwad my fellow members were. Just then, an old acquaintance stuck a toused, tousled and aching head in the door. He was our prize, Slippy. I could see he had an awful hangover. Remembering some of my own, my heart filled with pity. I motioned him to my side, to inside my cubicle, and produced a $5 bill. As my total income was $30 a week at the time, this was a fairly large donation. Lewis really needed the money for groceries, but that didn't stop me. I, you know, I don't think it ever did, but <laughs> the intense relief on my friend's face warmed my heart. I felt especially virtuous as I thought of all the drunks, the ex-drunks, who wouldn't even send the foundation a dollar apiece, and here I was gladly making a $5 investment to fix a hangover. That's that humility. <laughs> fucking bill man the meeting that night was at new york's old 24th street clubhouse during the intermission the treasurer gave a timid talk on how broke the club was that was in the period when you couldn't mix aa 
and money. But finally, he said it. The landlord would pet, uh, put us out if we didn't pay up. He concluded his remarks by saying, Now, boys, please go heavier on the hat tonight, will you? I heard all this quite plainly as I was piously trying to convert a newcomer who sat next to me. The hat came in my direction and reached into my pocket. Still working on my prospect, I fumbled and came up with 50 cent piece. Somehow, it looked like a very big coin. Hastily, I dropped it back and fished out a dime, which clunked thinly as I dropped it in the hat. Hats never got folded money in those days. Then I woke up. I, who had boasted my, my generosity that morning, was treating my own club worse than the distant alcoholics who had forgotten to send the foundation their dollars. I realized that my $5 gift to the Slippy was an ego-feeding proposition. Bad for him and bad for me. There was a place in AA where spirituality and money could mix. And that was in that hat. There's another, <laughs> there's another story. See, it's interesting because now all the clubs have to send the found, you know, the, the general services offices money. Uh, there's another story about money. One night, 1948, the trustees of the foundation were having their quarterly meeting. The agenda discussion included a very important question. A certain lady had died. When her will was read, it was discovered that she left alcoholics uh, in trust with the Alcoholic Foundation a sum of $10,000. The question was, should AA take the gift? Uh, all, also, there is a general services assembly. Uh, every region, that's probably what those groups of groups was called, was a region. Every region has a bigger business meeting. So there's usually a representative that's voted on for each group to then go to these region business meetings and they talk about like quarterly finances and like all this other stuff. I, I have been that a few times it is not my cup of tea, but it's really good for people that are like, you know, super business minded folks because they can have that outlet of going and doing like a big business meeting like that. And again, stuff's voted on for the region. And then again, the very big, big meeting, the huge meeting stuff's voted on there. That's how secular AA even became able to be listed in the books for a while. It wasn't allowed. People had to keep going to the big meetings and saying, I want this to happen and having that voice. So there's, you know, it's slow moving, but there's, there is all that if you're interested in that kind of stuff. What a debate we had on that one. The foundation was really hard up just then. The groups weren't sending in enough for the support of the office. We had been tossing in all the book income, and even that hadn't been enough. The reserve was melting like snow in springtime. We needed that $10,000. Maybe, some said. The groups will never fully support the office. We can't let it shut down. It's far too vital. Yes, let's take the money. Let's take all such donations in the future. We're going to need them. Then came the opposition. They pointed out that the foundation board already knew of a total of half a million dollars to set aside for AA and the wills of people still alive. <laughs> now they're worried like, oh, we're going to start offing people. Heaven only knew how much there was we hadn't heard about. If outside donations weren't declined, absolutely cut off, then the foundation would one day become rich. Moreover, at the slightest intimation to the general public from our trustees that we needed money, we could become immensely rich. Compared to this prospect, the $10,000 under consideration wasn't much, but like the alcoholics' first drink, it would, if taken, inevitably set up a disastrous chain reaction. Where would that land us? Whoever pays the piper is apt to call the tune, and if the AA Foundation obtained money from outside sources, its trustees might be tempted to run things without reference to the wishes of AA as a whole. Relieved of responsibility, every alcoholic would shrug and say, oh, the Foundation is wealthy, why should I bother? Well, also, there's the people that would be like, the Foundation's cash-heavy. They won't notice if I take a little more for myself. The pressure of that fat treasury would surely tempt the board to invest all kinds of schemes to do good with such funds and so divert AA from its primary purpose. The moment that happened, our fellowship's confidence would be shaken. The board would be isolated and would fall under heavy attack of criticism from both AA and the public. 
These were the possibilities pro and con. Banner trustees wrote a bright page of AA history. They declared for the principle that AA must always stay poor. Bare running expenses plus a prudent reserve would henceforth be the foundation's principal policy. Difficult as it was, they officially declined that $10,000 and adopted a formal airtight resolution that all such future gifts would be uh, similarly declined. That's what I'm saying about like the houses that are donated. Like they, they stay in estates, you know, or are handled in that fashion so that they aren't an actual asset of AA. And should those estates, for whatever reason, change hands, then AA would just lose the ability to use that building. Like, they can't financially gain from it. It's not a part of their assets. They can't, like, use that as leverage to get more money. Then, uh, when these facts were printed, there was a profound reaction. To people familiar with endless drives for charitable funds, AA presented a strange and refreshing spectacle. Approving editorials here and abroad generated a wave of confidence in the integrity of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have no idea if any of this is true. They pointed out that the irresponsible had become responsible responsible and that by making financial independence part of its tradition alcoholics anonymous had revived an ideal that its era had almost forgotten yeah i'm sure that that might be played up i don't think the aa was in the news like it like this book may suggest that it was it could be wrong i know there was a couple really big articles that were written about aa but i don't think that it was like you know a hot topic constantly for for members of the press like he's got a bunch of money i see and uh, what are they gonna do with it oh they're not gonna do nothing with it well let's write a full page article on the front page you know front page of that i don't think anybody cared however uh, the aa finances always come up is like a reason why it's a cult and it's weird because of what it's built on like the way that the finances are handled in this organization is a shitty 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 business model it really is and that's coming from someone who's been on the other side the business side of it while i might not be a treasurer i do know that quite often we didn't have enough money to send the general services as a as a group the whole of secular aa i am not talking like just the one meeting i attended the whole secular group that i participated in couldn't fucking pay the gsa for like a whole year because we weren't generating enough money from our regular meetings and we weren't begging people and we weren't telling people they needed to throw in a little bit more we we're just operating as normal and there were people because the rent was low enough. There were people that if at the end of the day, at the end of the month, you know, things didn't flush, someone would toss in 20 or 30 bucks or whatever the difference was. And we would cover our expenses more often than not. None of that money went to the GSA. And it's not like somebody from the GSA showed up and was like, Hey, you guys got to try harder. So I don't know if that's their fucking plan is to altruistically like fleece their population of money. They've done a really shitty job of it. All right. That's it. That's the episode. Again, I find myself short on time somehow because that's just my fucking lot in life as a person still not treating their ADHD properly. Uh, so I'm going to be fast clipping this guy together and getting it out the door. If there's anything about this episode that you'd like to comment on or talk to me about, please reach out. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of AA. And you can find me on a Gmail at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. I do apologize again for that weird, like kind of blip in the middle there where I just sort of went rambly. I'm leaving it in there since that's just like only reasonable that I continue to share kind of my state of mind sometimes if I'm not in the best state of mind. The only thing I really edit is I try to edit out some of the ums and ands because I say those both a lot. I don't always successfully do that as my friend has pointed out but i do my best uh, other than that the only thing i uh, try to edit is like big gaps because there's times where i'm reading and I, I get lost in a thought and like there's this huge gap and then I, I try to get rid of that stuff so i do a little bit of editing just to try to clean up the episodes but you know if i get rambly i leave it in 
so if uh, if you'd like less of that let me know if you like more of that let me know i have a feeling that after i get done with the 12 by 12 a lot of my episodes are going to be rambly man it's going to be me probably talking about a lot of the same stuff because as i'm doing this the more i'm doing this i am seeing like the common threads don't be shitty to people don't be shitty to yourself and your life gets better it's pretty much it there's only so many ways that you could rephrase that uh, in different languages that that doesn't come back to being like the base the basis for all of this don't don't be shitty to yourself and don't be shitty to other people yeah pretty pretty s- straightforward so i appreciate you um listening and keep me sober one more day until next time